0: Good evening. We're glad that you're here tonight. And tonight we're going to be continuing on what we believe, the fundamental truths that we adhere to here at Calvary. And tonight's topic is the ordinances of the church. And before I get started, let me encourage you if you have any questions that you would like to ask, that you want us to answer, if you'll go to our website. CalvarySpringfield.org and then go to contact. You can submit your questions there and Pastor Mark will be addressing those. So the topics that we have talked about, the inspired Word of God, the one true God, the deity of Christ, the fall of man, the salvation of man, and then tonight's topic is the ordinances of the church. And we want you to understand what we believe That's your foundation so tonight as pastor Dan comes he doesn't like that as Dan comes tonight um, let's just go to Lord in prayer Heavenly Father we thank you I pray that you would just bless and touch father we pray number one should just touch Dan and, and anoint him to minister to share father anoint and touch us to receive to be able to hear father not just to hear a message But, Father, to learn that we can share, that we can have a foundation which is built on the rock. And I pray that you would just continue to lead us and guide us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's welcome our guest tonight, Dan Shariah. Thank you.
1: Well, tonight, as Pastor Paul mentioned, we're going to talk about the ordinances of the church. And specifically, there are two ordinances of the church that we recognize at Calvary Church. And we are like most Protestant churches in that regard. And those two ordinances are water baptism and communion. And I bet you could have guessed those if I hadn't said what they were. Now, depending on what your background is, um, how many of you have a background other than you know, like Pentecostal or Assembly of God or something like that. Something other than that. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of people do. We find that at Calvary Church we have a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds. And there are some denominations that, that use the term sacraments. And they talk about the sacraments of the church. In fact, the Roman church, the Roman Catholic Church, has seven sacraments. And A question, I guess, that we could ask is, should we be calling these things sacraments or should we be calling them ordinances, as I've mentioned and as Paul's mentioned already tonight? Well, um, let me tell you a little bit about the term sacrament. The term sacrament um, can imply that a special grace is bestowed on, on people that perform these rites whether or not that person has faith or not. Now, that's not across the board how all churches inter- interpret sacraments, but there are churches that interpret the word sacrament as something that if you do that, there is some grace that is bestowed upon you regardless of, of your heart. Now, um, that's where we have a problem with the term sacrament um, because it's, it's it, it seems to refer at times to a means of through which God enacts his grace. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that, right? The Bible does not teach it. What the Bible teaches is that um, there is not any special merit attached to these acts. There is no saving power in the acts themselves. For example, if we just baptize that person, he'll go to heaven. Well, no, it's not grace in the act itself. To make it clear, that that we don't agree with that we specifically and purposefully use the term ordinance um, and we understand that baptism and communion are symbolic so that's why we use that term so tonight that's the term that i'm going to be using instead of sacrament and and that's just a little background because i I know there are people um, here tonight i'm sure from different different denominational backgrounds so let's start with water baptism that's where we want to start Um, here is our statement of faith regarding water baptism The ordinance of baptism by immersion is commanded in the Scriptures. All who repent and believe on Christ as Savior and Lord are to be baptized. Thus, they declare to the world that they have died with Christ and that they also have been raised with Him to walk in newness of life. That's our statement of faith regarding regarding water baptism. Now, the New Testament clearly teaches... Throughout the New Testament, repeatedly, it talks about the importance of water baptism. Jesus established water baptism as a pattern for new believers, and it's been part of the Christian um, practice ever since the beginning of the church. Go back to the very origins of the church. Now, before Christianity, prior, the church... um, there, was a, there were ceremonial wash, washings that, that the Jewish people would do for different reasons. However, there was only one. There was one ceremonial washing that was done once and once and for all. And that was when, when a non-believer or a non-Jewish person converted to Judaism. And they repented of their old life and they became Jews. At that point, they would be immersed and, and it was very similar to the baptism that, that we think about when we read in the New Testament. So, the first mention of baptism in the New Testament was John the Baptist, right? And, and we read in, um, in, in Matthew that, that John was preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's in Matthew 3. And in Matthew 1, it says specifically, this is, this is the kind of baptism it was. He says specifically, John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is what he was calling the Jewish nation to. Calling the Jewish nation to repentance so that they could be forgiven of their sins. Now... Think about this, what I just told you, that prior to John the Baptist, the only thing similar to this was this conversion process for, for, for pagans or Gentiles or non-Jews to become Jews. That was the only thing that the Jews had to compare this to. So if you can understand that for John to tell Jewish people that they had to be baptized and repent in the same manner that non-Jews and pagans did, that it, was, it could be pretty insulting pretty offensive, you know, to Jewish people. But the point of John's ministry was that everyone has to come to God under the same terms. And the understood ultimate example for the Jewish people, for them, for them of this total repenting from an old life and starting a new life was this baptism, this, this, this ceremony that they had become familiar with, with, with non-Jews becoming Jewish. Now, So there's John the Baptist, and what what do we see? We see that Jesus then was baptized by John the Baptist. and, And here's what it says in Matthew 3. I want to read this account. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented as soon as Jesus was baptized he went up out of the water and at that moment heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him and a voice from heaven said this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased what an amazing event wouldn't that be awesome to have been there to be in that crowd who have come out to see what is John the Baptist doing and what's going on? And, and to see this take place, just, just another person come into the water to be baptized. And John making a big fuss about him and say, no, 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 don't, no, no, you, you should be baptizing me. And John understood that his baptism was for repentance, for the forgiveness of sin. And John knew that just like everyone, he was a sinful person, right? And here comes the spotless Lamb of God. I, I believe it's a... Yeah, it is i believe it's a telling in the book of John you know this is this is in every one of the gospels i believe it is john where it quotes john the baptist saying behold the lamb of god and here is the lamb of god and and john a sinful man was going to baptize him so why why did this happen why why would jesus need to be baptized i mean certainly he had no sin to repent of right jesus was perfect he was the only perfect person that ever walked on the earth well There are several reasons that people have offered to answer this question. And and before I I say what, what these reasons are, I want to point out to you that the Bible doesn't say what they are, okay? The Bible never explicitly says Jesus had to be baptized because fill in the blank, right? Never happened. But here are some things that people have speculated. One, as Jesus was about to embark on his public ministry, it was a way to be recognized publicly By his predecessor. Now, John, when he would give answer to the Pharisees who were sent from Jerusalem to find out what was going on, when he gave answer for himself, he referred to the book of Isaiah, the 40th chapter, the third verse, where it it, it prophesied about a voice crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. This was a prophecy that Isaiah had for that prophet that would come before Jesus, and John knew that he was the guy. And he would tell them that. So this was an event. Jesus being baptized was an event for John to finally say, here he is. This is the one. And if you look in all the gospel accounts, that's exactly what John did. That's exactly what he did. This is the one I've been talking about. He says, I, I'm not even worthy to, to undo the sandals, his, the straps of his sandals. This is the one. So that's one reason. It was an opportunity for, for John the voice crying in the wilderness, to actually point Jesus out. Another possible reason is, is that it allowed Jesus to identify with sinners. These are the ones that he had come to seek and save, right? Sinners. That's who Jesus had come for. And Jesus set an example for them. He set an example for all of us. In the scripture we just read, that scripture, the account, um, Jesus said it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Um, what, what he was doing is he was demonstrating to everybody, this is necessary for us to be righteous, for you to be righteous. This is the act that you have to do, um, be baptized for repentance, for the forgiveness of sin. This is necessary. So he did it as an example to sinners. Another possible reason was he was showing his approval of John. Right? Um, he was bearing witness before all these people that John's ministry was from heaven and that God's ministry was approved by God. He was giving legitimacy to what John was doing. And finally, I don't know if this is a reason as much as a beautiful result, but it provided an opportunity to show unequivocally the triune nature of God. We see in this one scene... All three aspects of the Godhead. Now, Pastor Mark, a few weeks ago, you know, spoke on the one true God, and um, you know, he said, he said that he struggles with really explaining how the triune God works. It's three, but it is one. And, and you know, we think of all these metaphors, but none of the metaphors quite work. It's just the way it is. But here's a beautiful setting where we see all three. We see the Son of God in the water And we hear the voice of the Father saying from heaven, this is my son that I love. I'm pleased with him. And then we see the Holy Spirit between the two comes down from heaven and rests on him. What a beautiful picture. You know, so if no other reason, this just provided a beautiful um, example for us to see God in in the three parts of the Godhead, right? So, Jesus was baptized, and then Jesus' disciples baptized as well. I want to read a verse in John 3. This is, this is John 3, 22. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. In fact, it goes on to talk about John's disciples are saying, Hey, this guy, you know that guy from the other day, he's now baptizing all these people and everybody's rushing to him. What do you think of that? You know, so this was going on, and it appears by reading the scripture that Jesus was doing the baptizing. But I want you to look a few verses later. If we go just a couple verses later to John 4, 1 through 2. It says, Now Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Now, when John was talking about the Christ, when John was talking about the Messiah, John the Baptist made it quite clear. He said that Jesus baptized, this is what he said about Jesus' baptism. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And a couple of the accounts in the Gospels say with the Holy Spirit and fire. What John was saying is, Jesus doesn't baptize with water. He's got something more powerful. So, what we see in these instances is not Jesus actually baptizing, but as John points out really clearly, Jesus' disciples were baptizing others as well. So, water baptism baptism is something Jesus' disciples, all of them, including us, including us, are called to do. Look in Matthew, the 28th chapter. We're familiar with this. This is the Great Commission, right? 28th chapter, the 19th verse, it says... um, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't just Jesus' disciples, the 11 or the 12, the 12 who were baptizing. But as his disciples made more disciples, and they made more disciples, and made more disciples. And here we are in 2017, and we are still the disciples of Jesus Christ, and we're still baptizing them. it's a call on all disciples in perpetuity. So, what then do you suppose is the purpose? What, what's the purpose of baptism? I mean, we talked about why maybe Jesus was baptized, but, but what do we think the purpose is? We publicly identify, publicly identify with Jesus' death and resurrection. That's kind of the simplest answer for it. When we accept Jesus' salvation by faith, we identify with him and we begin to share in his life, his death, his death and his resurrection. And through baptism, we we make it public. That sharing in his life, death, and resurrection, we make that public in front of other people. Romans 6, the fourth, uh, the sixth chapter, the fourth through fifth verses say this. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him In a death like His, we will certainly also be reunited with Him or united with Him in a resurrection like His. Wow. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. This then is the symbolism. This is the symbolism of baptism. And John lays it out really clearly here. The symbolism is, first, we are lowered beneath the water To signify our death and our burial with Christ. Our death to our old way of life and living and our burial with Christ. And then, thank goodness, the preacher doesn't leave you there (laughs) underwater. We're raised out of the water to signify our resurrection to Christ and to new life. And just the thought of that... What's that symbolizing? That our old self is dead. Our old old self that was ruled by the flesh, it was ruled by sin is dead. And we are raised up new with Christ is an exciting thought. That's why when we have baptism services, people get kind of wound up around here. You see people clapping. You hear the testimonies and they baptize them and everyone's clapping and praising God because it's such a cool thing. Incidentally, this Sunday, here at the Hazeldale campus in both services, we're going to be baptizing people. So we're going to be celebrating this with a bunch of our brothers and sisters this week. It's going to be really, really neat. This is what it says in—well, um, oh, wait a second. That's the point I want to make, though, before I move on. Um, baptism only symbolizes this death and new life. It does not give us new life. Please understand, baptism, the act itself, does not give us new life. It symbolizes it. Because what does the scripture say? Romans 5, 9. Since we now have been justified by his blood, what is it that justifies us? The blood of Christ. When we go down to the baptismal pool, hey, we're, we're being washed in the water. And symbolically, it's cool. But folks, you got to be washed in the blood first. Amen? that's what it is that saves us. In 1st Peter the 1st chapter it says, "For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect." Could you about sing right now? Wow, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Yeah. So understand this. We are not saved because we are baptized. We are baptized because we are saved. Baptism has meaning only for believers. First point I want to make on this. Um, think about the day of Pentecost. It says in Acts, the second chapter, the 41st verse those who accepted his message first were baptized second and about three thousand were added to their number that day Remember the story of paul and silas they were in in philippi and they had been thrown into a jail and it was a horrible pit They were thrown in and and they were praying and singing songs to god And it says all the prisoners were listening to them around midnight and there's an earthquake and all the doors flew open Remember and the jailer thought oh no everyone's escaped and he's going to kill himself because he would rather do that than get killed for losing his prisoners. And, and, and Paul and Silas said, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. We're here. No one's left. We're all here. And long story short, the Philippian jailer ended up accepting Christ, becoming a believer. He and all his household. And it says in, um, in Acts, the sixth chapter, 31st through 33rd verse, um, Paul and Silas were talking. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. They accepted the word first. They, 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 they got saved, is how we like to say it in, in our generation, right? They got saved, and then they were baptized. Philip, when Philip was in Samaria, the disciple Philip, Acts 8, the 12th chapter, or chapter 8, the 12th verse, it says, but when they believed, Philip was, was witnessing to people, in Samaria, Samaritans of all things, right? Oh, you know the enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Here he is in Samaria witnessing. And, and all these people got saved. It says, when they believed Peter as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of, Christ, of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. What happened? First, they believed. Second, they were baptized. And not really to beat this around because I think you get my point, but I really love this next one. Because I'm a Gentile. We're all Gentiles, right? Unless You may be Jewish. I don't know. But but I love this one because this is the first Gentile that received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts ten forty four through 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter, they had come from Jerusalem to Caesarea, um, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. Yeah. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They not only got saved first, these believers were filled with the Holy Spirit before they even got baptized in water. So I I know I'm kind of overstressing the point, but the point is it has to be a reaction to a decision that you've already, already made in your heart. Okay, baptism is for believers. And also, baptism has no meaning for infants. Now, if, you know, if you're raised in a different denomination that baptizes infants, I, I don't mean to you know, get you all disrupted or anything. I mean, um, but the Bible has no instance at all in the Bible of baptizing infants. And, and just quite logically, an infant has not yet made a decision that baptism is supposed to be a testimony of. It's a testimony of that decision that you died to Christ, raised to new life. And an infant cannot do that. So we do not believe as well um, that infants should be baptized, and we believe that baptism basically has no meaning. So if you were baptized as an infant and never baptized as an adult, I encourage you, I encourage you, as an adult, as a willful act of your own will, make that decision, you know, and, and, and be baptized. So, we believe that baptism should be by immersion. Historically, there have been three different ways of baptizing um, in water, baptizing in water. One is sprinkling, and that's called aspersion. One is pouring, which is called effusion. That's you know, taking a bowl or a cup and pouring water over a person. And then there's immersion. And for a number of reasons, we believe that believers should be baptized by the third method, and that is immersion. I'm just going to give you a few of those reasons why. First, the meaning of the word itself. The word in the Greek is baptizo, and baptizo actually means to submerge. I mean, it's what the word means. The way it's used in the New Testament, it's, it's used to mean to, to cover completely. So, that would probably be where we could stop if we wanted, because that's what the word is. But, um, the, the next reason is that the method of baptism used in the New Testament, when they describe it, it always involves individuals going into the water. Okay? One of the examples was Philip and the Ethiopian. There's a, there's a, a story where, where Philip went to an Ethiopian. God said, go up there to that guy. He went up to, beside his chariot, heard him reading from the book of Isaiah, and, and he said, can I, can I help you with that? And well, he said, yeah, I, no one to explain it. I don't know what this means. Again, long story short, <laughs> Philip witnesses to this Ethiopian and he gets saved. And he says, well, is there any reason I shouldn't be baptized now? Well, no, let's do it. So, um, so they went and it says they went down into the water, is what it says in Acts 8, 38. They went down into the water to be baptized. And it says after Jesus was baptized, when you look in Matthew, what's it says? say? It says he went out of the water. So these examples in the, in the New Testament show people going into the water and coming out of the water. So that's another reason we believe in immersion. And finally, the, re- the third reason is because of the symbolism. We just read... The symbolism that Paul talked about, right, in the sixth chapter. And immersion best fits that symbolism that Paul discusses. of Being buried to death and raised to new life. Now, now that I've already said all that, I will say this. Immersion is the manner in which we baptize new believers. However, exceptions can certainly be made you know, for people who are sick, people who are dying. I mean, there are people that you just can't physically, because of the physical situation, you can't immerse them in water. And you know what? God understands that. Because what what have we been talking about? It's not the act that confers grace. The act is a memorial of that grace. This is just a symbol of what's already happened. And if a person can't physically be immersed, don't fear. They're not in danger of losing their salvation because of it. Um, the most important thing is the decision itself. So, there's a lot of controversy, right, about how do you be baptized? There's a lot of controversy about can you baptize infants and, and that sort of thing. Well, here's, here's, another, here's another one. In whose name do we baptize people? Well, the New Testament provides a clear formula. And this is what we use when we baptize. Back to Matthew 28 again. We've already read Matthew 28. Therefore, go go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's how we baptize believers. And that's how we believe is the scriptural way to baptize believers. Now, in that phrase that I just read... In the name literally means into the name. Is what that means into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that phrase was commonly used in those days to mean into the worship and service of. Okay, are you getting that picture? Now, the reason I mention that is this is some kind sometimes confused um, by what Peter said on the day of Pentecost when, when Peter. Um, had preached, and all these, all these people, you know, said, what do we do, you know, and they they, they accepted Christ, they accepted Jesus as Lord. Um, on that day of Pentecost, people, Peter told them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, this seems to contradict, right, what Jesus said. Jesus said, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And, this, and, and it looks as if Peter is saying, In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Well. The word in. Is translated the same into English. But the Greek word is different. It was translated that way. And the literal translation of what Peter said. The literal translation is. Upon the name of Jesus. Or upon the authority of Jesus. He wasn't saying in when you baptize them, say, in the name of Jesus. If I, were to, if, if I were to say, in Jesus' name, stop, what am I saying? Under the authority of Jesus, stop. And that's the terminology that, that Peter is using. In the name of Jesus, be baptized. Um, Peter's not giving us a formula, but is referring to the authority that commands us and gives us the right, gives us the right, the authority to baptize So this is what I want you to think about. If we put those two verses together, if we take the meaning of Jesus saying that disciples are to be baptized into, or into the worship and service of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, and we we look at Peter saying, by the authority of Jesus, be baptized for the forgiveness of sin, we would conclude that what, what was actually being said was, upon the authority of Jesus, that you, you baptize upon the authority of Jesus into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that's how we take that meaning to be where it seems to be um, conflicting, conflicting scriptures. But they're really not. I hope I wasn't confusing about that. Okay. So what does this mean for us? First, we must obey Jesus' command to follow his example of baptism as a public testimony that we are united with him in his death and raised with him to a life of service and worship to God. And two, we must obey Jesus' command to make disciples and baptize them as well in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, in the spirit of full disclosure, I was baptized when I was eight years old. And as I grew in the Lord, and and especially in my teen years and my 20s, I realized, you know, when I was eight years old, I really kind of didn't know what I was doing. You know, I went to a Baptist church, and everyone, I mean, their name was Baptist for crying out loud. So what'd you do? You got baptized, right? You went to a Baptist church, got to be baptized, and you know, you go forward just as I am, right? Hey, any good Baptist church, you do just as I am at the end of the service, and uh, One Sunday during just as I am I went up and really I went up to the altar because my sister did and thought well This sounds like a good time. You know, I just so so I realized that You know the testimony that I was speaking to when I got baptized, I I didn't know what I was doing. I really didn't so Three years ago. I think it's three four years ago. Time flies when you're having fun. Mrs. J was there. We were in Israel Terry was there? Yeah. And we went to the Jordan River, and several people said they wanted to be baptized. And I realized, you know what? What a better place to do it than the Jordan River. And, uh, and I was baptized again. You know, I was in my 50s, got baptized again. And wow, it was such an awesome thing. First of all, I got to tell you, you know, Pastor Mark baptized me. And to have my good friend baptize me was an awesome experience. And to be in the Jordan River was an awesome experience. But the fact that I was finally making a, f- a public testimony fully aware of what I was doing, okay? I wasn't, you know, I, 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 and I don't, want, I don't want to say that children shouldn't be baptized. Please don't let me, don't, don't take that from what I'm saying because there are a lot of eight-year-olds that get saved and they fully know what they're doing and they understand and, yeah, let's go. And I say, let's do it. Let's baptize them. Let him make that public proclamation. But for me, it wasn't. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't genuine, I don't think. So what the, the only reason I tell you that story is I encourage you. Maybe you weren't baptized as an infant. But maybe you were baptized kind of like me and and you know, and you really didn't know what you were doing. And now you've really committed your life to God, you're serving him, you're on fire for him. Don't be embarrassed to say, I I think I want to be baptized. Don't think that people will look at you and say, good night, that person's been going to church here for 30 years. What are they, they're just getting around to it? Forget what anyone might say. I I hope my story will just encourage you in that regard. Let, Let me move on. Before we run out of time, I want to talk about the second ordinance. The second ordinance is, that we recognize, is Holy Communion. And this is our statement. This is our statement about Holy Communion. Holy Communion, also referred to as the Lord's Supper, consists of bread or wafers and the fruit of the vine. Believers in Jesus Christ share communion to remember His death and look forward to His return. It is also an expression of the believer's shared divine nature of the Christ. Now, Jesus um, instituted the ordinance of Holy Communion, also called the the Lord's Supper, on the night of His betrayal, as He was celebrating the Passover for the last time with His disciples. Communion is a rite that, for the Christian, replaces the Passover for the Jews. In Luke, the 22nd chapter, 19th, 20th verse, it says, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I love Paul's description. Um, and apparently, Paul got this right from Jesus. Wow. Isn't that cool? Because this is what he says. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And, we, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you, drink, as, as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, that's the story. That's what we base our practice on. But what about the term Holy Communion? You know, where does that term come from? That term actually comes from the King James Version of um, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. And, And I will say there are other older versions, like the American Standard Version. There are other older versions as well that use this term. And this is what it says in the King James Version. It says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, it is not... Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? This word is translated communion. It's, it's a Greek word called koinonia. Some of you may have heard that term before. Koinonia is a Greek word. It refers to fellowship or participation. Sometimes it talks about the koinonia of the saints, the fellowship of the saints. And, and what this is talking about is that this is implying that This bread and this cup is more than just a piece of bread and some juice. It's more than that. We are participating in the body and participating in the blood of Christ when we take these elements. Now, we call these, I just call them elements, a a common term that we use are communion emblems. You've, you've probably heard us use those words before. Sometimes the pastor would say, you know, if the ushers could pass out the emblems right now. Um, an emblem is just another word for symbol. And communion uses bread and grape juice as emblems to represent the body and the blood of Christ. First of all, the bread. The bread, as as we just saw in Scripture, is the body of Christ. In Matthew 26, 26 It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Um, Some some scriptures say, this is my body that is for you. Some references say, this is my body given for you. The, the, The gist of it is, however, that that is the body of Christ, and it represents not only the body of christ but the broken body of christ this was foreshadowing what was about to happen to christ the next day do this in remembrance of me is what he says to remember me then the cup is the blood of christ and mark 14 24 um, references that as well he describes the cup as as being his blood Um, but but this is this is a point that I want to bring out that, that it mentions in every reference, even, even Paul mentioned it in Corinthians. He says that this is the new covenant of my blood, or the blood of the new covenant. It's covenant. It's said differently in different in different gospels. The point is that the old covenant, the old testament, the power of the law was done. And we now had a new covenant. What did we say that earlier? The blood of Christ. Blood of Christ washes away our sins and brings us redemption. And Jesus was starting on that night. He's basically saying, you're going to see it tomorrow. They're going to take me and crucify me. My body will be broken. My blood spilled. And it was a new covenant that was starting right then. There was no more power of death, sin, hell, and the grave. There was no more power of the law over us. But there's a new covenant that Christ was starting. Now, We do not believe that these communion emblems are literally the body and the blood of Christ. That's called transubstantiation. The belief of transubstantiation is that at some point during the ceremony, and that varies what point that may be, they actually physically become the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. We do not believe that. We believe very strongly that Jesus was talking metaphorically, right? And Jesus did that often. Jesus used metaphors. He used, um, he used them often in, in his stories. But um, if, if you just start with the fact that Jesus was there the night of the Lord's Supper, here was his body, his blood was flowing through it, and here was a piece of bread, and he said that was his body. Well, obviously, his body's right here. I mean, it was very clear that he was speaking metaphorically, and that's how we take the Scripture. And I know there are other denominations that teach otherwise, um, but that, that's our position. Now, even though he was speaking metaphorically, the point that I want to make sure we don't lose as Protestants, because basically most Protestants do not believe in, um, in transubstantiation, let us never lessen the reverence and sacredness by which we partake of the elements. Okay, even though that bread is bread, even though that juice is just juice, okay, and we don't believe it's literally the blood and, and body of Christ, let us not take it any less reverently. Just remember, this is still a sacred, sacred, sacred act. And when we're taking that bread... That's a symbol. It's a sacred symbol, nonetheless, right? Okay. So then, why would why should we do it? Why Why do we still take communion today? Why do we take it? Well, um, what Paul said in First Corinthians, he says eleven twenty six. He says, "For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." So, there seem to be at least two reasons in Scripture. First, Jesus said, do it in remembrance of me. Do it in remembrance of me. So, we do it to remember him. Um, And then Paul said we should proclaim, when we do it, we proclaim the Lord's death. And we do that, how long? Until he comes. Keep doing it until he comes. I guess we can understand from there that we won't receive communion in heaven, right? See, Jesus was about to leave his disciples, and he instituted this ordinance as a way for his disciples to remember him. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul just takes this further by implying that this command was not just for the 12 disciples. It wasn't a private thing that Jesus had going on with the 12, but it was for all of us. He also states that we are not just remembering Jesus in general— but specifically, we are remembering and proclaiming his death. And that, that, that is the significance of, of communion. And we do it until he returns. When we partake in the act of communion, I think it's important to focus on Jesus and his suffering and his death. You know, we have been bought at a very high price. A very precious price. And we must never forget it. <sighs> There's so many things that can capture our attention when we gather together. You know, when we get, gather together, church, so many things can grab our attention. And they're good things, good things, definitely. And, um, you know, they're worthy of things that are worthy of contemplation, prayer, exhortation. But when we stop and we share communion together, I think we should be laser focused. I really do. We should be laser focused. I don't care what's going on in this service beforehand. I don't care what's taking place in the service after, but when we receive communion together, partake of it together, we should be laser-focused. When you're taking the bread, think about Jesus' body broken for you. Think about it. Man, don't let those times pass. When you drink the cup, think about his precious blood purchasing your redemption. Think about it. Wow, it's been several years ago now that the Passion of the Christ came out. I don't know. Probably most of you have seen it. I can, I can still remember going to the theater and seeing it. And I remember when it was over, people getting up and leave. I couldn't, even, I couldn't stand. I mean, I would just sat there just so overwhelmed. And, and understand the passion in that tense. That's not talking about love. That's an old term, passion, meaning suffering and death. That's an old use of the word passion. It means suffering. And I remember just being so overwhelmed. And, boy, the next several times when I would receive communion, my mind, I'd I'd be holding the the bread, you know, and ready to take it, or holding the cup, and my mind would race back to some of the scenes in that movie. And as horrific as that movie was, I, I know it's nothing like as bad as it probably was, you know. And uh, again, I, you know, I already mentioned it once when we were in Israel. Um, we went to where the where Caiaphas's palace had been, Caiaphas's house, and and they took us down in the, there were there were cells, jail cells, underground, and we're looking at these holding cells, and they were explaining, you know, it's it's quite probable that Christ that evening was held in one of these cells. And again, of all the places we visited in Israel, being in that place, I was just again overwhelmed by the passion of our Christ, by his suffering, and and being in that horrible place. And even then, you know, we're down there with tourists and you know, there are some electric lights, obviously. And, and I'm thinking, what was it like over 2,000 years ago? And torches and darkness and, and chaos and screaming and who knows what. And Christ did that for me. If you guys had never come along and it was just me, he would have done it for me, right? He would have done it for any of you. And uh, so, uh, I guess what I'm, what I'm encouraging to you to do is to think about those things when we receive communion. Um, Take care that you never let this sacred act become so familiar, so common that it loses its significance. Each time you share communion should be special. Each time. Don't take it lightly. Don't strip it of its meaning. Um, Don't let it become routine or mundane. And never, never let communion lose its sacredness. Ever. So... I would suggest that you always prepare yourself. If we're receiving communion in a service, we let you know. We tell you which services we're having communion. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, 27th verse through the 30th. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen fallen asleep. Paul is warning us. He's saying, first, do not eat and drink in an unworthy manner. He's saying, second, examine yourselves. And third, he's saying, do not eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ. Now, the church at Corinth had issues. Yeah, they had a lot of issues. They faced several major problems, sexual immorality, idolatry. There was a lot of divisiveness. There was class division in the church of Corinth. Um... And apparently, there were those among them who had partaken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Ostensibly, this means doing so with unrepented sin in their lives. Paul even calls them out on, on a few things, you know, where they were making communion and the Lord's Supper into these feasts, and they weren't even being fair about it. You know, there, there were very well-to-do people in the Corinthian church, and there were people who were not doing so well in the Corinthian church. And they weren't even waiting on each other. And it said, you know, some of you are getting drunk while others are starving, you know, and you're not even waiting on each other. It's just out of control. There's a phrase that Paul uses. He says, without discerning the body of Christ. Now, that can be taken two ways. And I think you can find, at least I found, An equal number of commentaries that are sure it means either of the two ways you can take it. I wish I was so sure of people as people are who write commentaries, you know? Because there's a lot of things I look at and I say I just don't know. But I want to tell you the two ways that you can take this. First, this phrase can refer to approaching the communion emblems as simply bread and juice and not acknowledging the fact that they represent the body and blood of Christ. I kind of talked about that earlier, right? I mean, even though we believe they're not literally the blood and the body of Christ, when we take them, we need to be discerning that this is what they represent, right? We need to understand the sacredness of it. The other way to view this phrase is that it refers to the church. Because what is the church referred to? the body of Christ. Again, in the context of the Corinthians con- uh, conduct, in the fact that there was so much division in the church of Corinth, then, then, then I, there's, there could be a case made for that as well. And I could certainly understand that. But um, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I do not know which one Paul was referring to. So here's the way I look at it. I, I'm going to be built in suspenders guy. I'm just going to uh, assume that it applies to both. Yeah, I figure I I can't be wrong in that regard. Um, So this is the warning that I take from this, from Paul. Always approach Holy Communion as a very sacred act involving emblems that represent the precious body and blood of Christ. And always recognize fellow believers as the body of Christ, His church, considering others better than yourselves. Good plan? Yeah. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask for understanding as we study these things. I pray, Lord, that anything I've said tonight, Lord, that nothing's been wrong, Lord. I don't want to misrepresent anything. But, Lord, we want to truly know what it is we believe and why we believe. So so help us to do that. And, and God, I just pray that, that these words, um, first, Lord, they would just be um, words of, of understanding for us so that we all understand what we believe about baptism and what we believe about communion. And second of all, I pray that these would be words of encouragement, Lord. I pray that if there are those sitting here, That, the Lord, they really never made a testimony, a public testimony of a decision, a genuine decision that they made to follow you. I pray that you would encourage them, they would be encouraged to to take that step and be publicly baptized, God. And secondly, Lord, I pray that, that we would all be encouraged that when we receive communion together, that, God, we would recognize it as a sacred act. That these emblems represent something very holy, very sacred, the blood of Christ bought our redemption, Lord, at such a great price. God let us always approach communion, thinking about the broken blood of our the body broken body of our Savior and the spilled blood of our Savior, and to act and respond appropriately. Lord. we love you, and we thank you for the great things that these represent. We thank you that the new life that we have that we can celebrate together as believers. And I ask your blessing now, Lord, on my, on my friends and brothers and sisters tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.